The Bible is full of colorful characters that many of us learned about as children. But there's a lot that sing-alongs and felt boards can't really teach us about these characters. After all, these are people that really lived and died. People that really failed and triumphed, learned and listened, doubted and believed. Let's dig into these stories together, trusting that they've been passed down to us for the same reason these ancient people lived through them, to develop some character of our own. guys this morning. I am Melody. I'm one of your pastors here, and I'm really excited to jump into the next segment of our character series today. Um, this is such a beautiful series because we get to kind of just explore some of these stories in the Bible, some of them that we've heard a million times, some of them that we maybe haven't really stopped to think about too much, some of them that have maybe bothered us a bit. Today's story has one, is one that has bothered me a bit. Um, but in that study and in that embrace of these stories, we find such beautiful truths. And so I'm really excited to do another one today. So the story for today is another bit part. Benjamin did a, a bit part message a couple weeks ago. And this is a very, very obscure character in the Bible. In fact, we don't even know his name. But I'm still going to let you guys guess, as is our way, although I'll be pretty impressed if you guys get this. Um, but I'm, I will give you a hint. That will help you, okay? This guy made what I would argue is one of the strongest declarations of faith in the entire Bible. Anybody have any ideas who it might be? That's pretty obscure, I know. All right. All right, I'm going to give you another hint. This one, if you know it, this one will give it away. That song that we sang a couple songs ago, Weep With Me, his words were in that song. Does anybody know it? No? All right, good. Well, we're going to have a good time today. It's the man who said, Lord, I believe. Help my unbelief. Lord, I believe. Help my unbelief. Now, that might not sound to you like one of the strongest declarations of faith in the entire Bible, right? But I'm going to make the case today that it is. So we're going to look at it together. But before we can get to the story, we need to set the stage for what we're going to be talking about today. We're going to take a look at what we mean when we talk about faith. Faith. Now, faith is one of those super, like, cornerstone Christian words that we all, like, yes, we have faith in God. That's kind of like a given when one becomes a Christian, one shall have faith in the Lord, right? But what does this faith really mean, and where does it come from? That's what we're going to talk about today. So the context of the inspiration for this message actually came from our youth retreat that we had a few weeks ago. I don't know if you guys know this, but we took all of our middle school and high school kids from Element on a retreat to Orlando a few weeks ago. And Pastor Benjamin did a really beautiful message about faith for our kids. And as he was giving this message about faith, he landed on a very specific scripture, one that we usually use to talk about faith. And as he was talking, the words of the scripture really grabbed me and started me thinking about faith in a little bit of a new way. So we're going to look at this scripture today first to start off. It's Hebrews 11.1. 1. And it says, Faith is the reality of what we hope for. It is the evidence of things we cannot see. Now, my dad has taught on this verse my whole life. I have been exposed to it many times. And it's always challenged me a little bit. 
right? Because it's beautiful and poetic, so of course I love it. Faith is the evidence of things we hope for, or the, it's the substance of things we hope for and the evidence of things we can't see. So I get the first part, right? It's the reality of what we hope for. Okay, so it's faith is the reality of what we're hoping for. We're hoping for the things we have faith in. Got it. But the second part, faith is the evidence of the things we cannot see. Let's stop and think for a minute today about what that means. Because how can our faith be evidence of those things? How can that be? All right, a little side note, as I've been preparing for this message, I just like to get it out there in case it gets into anybody else's head. Not sure if any of you guys were fans of the group For Him back in the day, but there's this song called Can't Get Past the Evidence. It's definitely been playing in my head ever, ever since I was writing this message, so I won't sing it for you today. I thought about having Benjamin sing it for you, but no. Anyways, how can our faith be evidence? Okay, because when we think of evidence, we think of something that's like scientifically or logically observable about a thing that points to a certain conclusion, right? So we're looking for evidence to base our assumptions about a certain thing, right? So it sounds like it needs to be logically observed from the exterior, right? My kids are into this show, Brain Games. Have you guys seen the show? It's pretty amazing. If you haven't seen it, you should check it out. They found it and they've binge watched like seven seasons of it in like two weeks. Welcome to summer. But I feel like it's okay because it's teaching them all these wonderful things about their brains. But it's a very like logic and science-based show that's teaching them all of these, um, what are like perception things and all this kind of stuff. You should check it out. But that's the kind of stuff when I think of evidence, I think about like logic and brain-based and things you can observe, right? But we're going to look at what could it mean for faith to be evidence. So in order to do that, we're going to look at the original Greek of this word evidence because that's going to help us decode what it's really saying here. So the Greek word in this Hebrews passage is elenchos, and it is the conviction or persuasion or demonstration. It denotes a strict proof or demonstration, a proof which thoroughly convinces the understanding and determines the will. That's what this word evidence in this scripture means. Thoroughly convinces the understanding and determines the will. Our faith is that evidence. It's something that thoroughly convinces our understanding and determines our will. That's a pretty strong statement, right? So how, how can that be? Shouldn't it be the other way around? Like, shouldn't it be that when we see the evidence of God working in the world, we see healing, we see miracles, we see redemption, that evidence grows our faith, right? Isn't that kind of what we think? Isn't that kind of how we engage our spirituality? I think it is a lot of the time if we don't stop and think about it. We would think that those things, the evidence, healing, miracles, redemption, that would be what our faith is built on. And our faith grows when we see evidence. But this is saying something completely different. This is saying that our faith is the evidence of those things existing. Kind of turns it on its head, doesn't it? So if that's true, then it means that real faith is not built on those exterior things, but it's built on some internal knowing in our heart and in our soul that thoroughly convinces our understanding and determines our will to believe in the things that we cannot see. 
So, how do we come by that? How do we come by that faith? Because if it's not being based on healing and miracles and redemption and all the things that we're just trying to observe about God in the world, how do we come by a faith so strong that it is the evidence of those things happening? I don't think that we can come by it in the way that we traditionally think that we can come by it. I think that some people think faith can come by your upbringing, by the community that you're surrounded with, by, the, by your parents, by a strong root of faith in your family and in your life, right? But I think we see a lot of times that, that, that faith built like that doesn't stick with people and that people leave their faith roots, right? So I don't think that's where it comes from. And I don't know that it's even a choice. I don't know if we can just choose to muster a belief so strong that it becomes evidence in, of a thing that we can't even see. Can we just choose to muster that? I don't think we can. I think that goes against everything that we know about Jesus, right? So if it's not just being surrounded by it, and it's not choosing to muster it, now of course we can choose to lean into something that's planted in us, right? But it's not choosing to believe it into existence. Then what is it? Where does faith come from? Remember, faith is a proof which thoroughly convinces the understanding and determines the will. So what births this faith in us? This brings us to our story. A story in Mark 9 about a man who has one of the strongest declarations of faith I think I've ever seen. And the statement is, Lord, I believe, help my unbelief. So let's read the story. Mark 9, starting in verse 17. A man in the crowd answered, Teacher, I brought you my son, who is possessed by a spirit that has robbed him of speech. Whenever it seizes him, it throws him to the ground. He foams at the mouth, gnashes his teeth, and becomes rigid. I asked your disciples to drive out the spirit, but they could not. You unbelieving generation, Jesus replied, how long shall I stay with you? How long shall I put up with you? Bring the boy to me. So they brought him. And when the spirit saw Jesus, it immediately threw the boy into a convulsion. He fell to the ground and rolled around, foaming at the mouth. Jesus asked the boy's father, how long has he been like this? From childhood, he answered. It has often thrown him into fire or water to kill him. But if you can do anything, take pity on us and help us. If you can, said Jesus, everything is possible for one who believes. Immediately, the boy's father exclaimed, I do believe. Help me overcome my unbelief. When Jesus saw that the crowd was running to the scene, he rebuked the impure spirit. You deaf and mute spirit, he said, I command you, come out of him and never enter him again. The spirit shrieked, convulsed him violently, and came out. The boy looked so much like a corpse that many said, he's dead. But Jesus took him by the hand and lifted him to his feet, and he stood up. After Jesus had gone indoors, his disciples asked him privately, why couldn't we drive it out? And he replied, this kind can only come out by prayer. That's the story. That's the whole story we have of this man and his life and his son. Now, I have not really ever liked this story because it stresses me out a little bit to see Jesus so testy with the disciples and the people. Like, Jesus, talk a little nicer. What in the world is really stressful to me? And I don't like his, like, apparent lack of patience with their faith or their lack of faith, right? Right? Um, and I have to examine my heart 
just like the disciples did at the end of this story, to look and see in my life if there are places where I'm hoping for a miracle without going to prayer about it, right? So it's a challenging passage in a lot of ways. But knowing Jesus as I do, I'm confident that he had every right and reason to be exasperated that day, right? But where I really connect in this story is with the Father, the Father, right? Because this guy is in a place of desperation. He's done everything he can do. He's gone to the disciples of Jesus, and they haven't been able to heal his son. And he's talking to Jesus, although he's not even sure that Jesus can do it. If you can heal my son, will you? That's all he has. That's all he has to bring to Jesus, right? And when Jesus challenges his faith, he says, Lord, I do believe. Help my unbelief. To me, that's the strongest statement of faith that I can imagine. Because this man is being 100% authentic with where he is and where his faith is, right? He's not trying to muster something that he doesn't have. He's just being completely raw and honest with Jesus to say, I do believe, I believe enough to come here and ask you, but you're going to have to help me if I need more belief than this. That's what he's saying, right? Do you realize the depth of wisdom and courage in that sentence? Can you imagine walking up to Jesus in those days and saying that to him? I think that this man on that day had one of the most important realizations about faith that there ever was, right? Because the source of our faith, the place that this faith comes from, it's not about how we are raised. It's not about mustering it. It's not about choosing it, right? It's not birthed by consuming all of the eloquent truth and finding the gems of wisdom that birth faith in us. It's not, it's not caused by seeing healing and miracles. That's not what it's built on, right? The source of that kind of faith that thoroughly convinces the understanding and determines the will is relationship with Jesus. That is the only source of a faith like that, right? Nothing else can birth something so deep and true in us, right? So the faith becomes the evidence of Jesus. It becomes the evidence of God in the world of redemption, of shalom, right? I'm not making this up. Let's look at the word faith. Let's look back at the word faith in that same scripture. The, word, the Greek word faith is the word pistis. Read this. Faith, pistis, is always a gift from God, never something that can be produced by people. In short, faith for the believer is God's divine persuasion and therefore distinct from human belief, yet involving it. The Lord continuously births faith in the yielded believer so that they can know what he prefers. The actual root of this word means gift. It means gift. It means it's from God. That's what faith is. So many times I think we think faith is something we need to choose or build. But truly, what Jesus says is that it's a gift, right? So since we're on the topic of faith, let's pause a minute and talk about what our faith is really in. Is our faith in the belief that circumstances will be okay if we trust Jesus? Like, if we have enough faith that we'll always experience healing and miracles and redemption, is that what our faith is in, in the outcome of our circumstances? Well, I could answer that question, 
But I think the writer of Hebrew, Hebrews expresses this better than I can. So Hebrews chapter 11, some call the hall of faith, right? And it's this chapter after that first verse that we read about, it's the substance of things hoped for and the evidence of things not seen. It goes into a beautiful litany of stories from the Old Testament of people who had deep faith. And because of their deep faith, beautiful and wonderful and redemptive things happened, right? And it talks about Moses and Joseph and Noah and Abraham and Rahab and all these people who are known for their faith. That's what this chapter is. But do you know how this chapter ends? Because it's pretty important to note how this chapter ends. So we're going to look at it here. Starting in verse 32, after all the stories of all the people I just mentioned, it says, How much more do I need to say? It would take too long to recount the stories of the faith of Gideon, Barak, Samson, Jephthah, David, Samuel, and all the prophets. By faith, these people overthrew kingdoms, ruled with justice, and received what God had promised them. They shut the mouths of lions, quenched the flames of fire, and escaped death by the edge of the sword. Their weakness was turned to strength. They became strong in battle and put whole armies to flight. Women received their loved ones again back from death. Great, all these wonderful circumstances because of their faith, right? But then what happens? But others were tortured, refusing to turn from God in order to be set free. They placed their hope in a better life after the resurrection. Some were jeered at, and their backs were cut open with whips. Others were chained in prisons. Some died by stoning, some were sawed in half, and others were killed with the sword. Some went about wearing skins of sheep and goats, destitute and oppressed and mistreated. They were too good for this world, wandering over deserts and mountains, hiding in caves and holes in the ground. All these people earned a good reputation because of their faith, yet none of them received all that God had promised, for God had something better in mind for us so that they would not reach perfection without us. Here it's saying, look at all the things that happened to these beautiful people of faith. Look at all the redemptive stories we have. Also, Look at all the people that were sawed in half and whipped and lived in holes in the ground. All of their faith is worth the same. All of their faith is part of the same story. In the message version, Hebrews 11.40 says it really beautifully. It says, God had a better plan for us, that their faith and our faith would come together to make one completed whole. Their lives of faith not complete apart from ours. And then it goes on in Hebrews 12 and says, Therefore, since we are surrounded by such a great cloud of witnesses, let us throw off everything that hinders and the sin that so easily entangles. And let us run with perseverance the race marked out before us, fixing our eyes on Jesus, the pioneer and the perfecter of our faith. The pioneer, the originator, the beginner, the seed planted in us, the beginning and the end and the perfecter, right? The one true narrative of redemption. That's what we're reading about here. That's what we're seeing. That all of the faith, all of the evidence of God working in the world, whether it was the circumstance that the person hoped for or whether that circumstance didn't come to pass, all of that faith is part of the one true narrative of redemption. One completed whole. So when we talk about faith regarding circumstantial matters, we know there's power there. We know that, right? Jesus did heal that boy that day, after all. 
And Moses led the people through the Red Sea. And Joshua led the battle of Jericho. And Abraham had a son. And God showed up in those circumstances. Right? But faith goes deeper than circumstance. True faith is evidence of the reality of Jesus, even when he doesn't show up in our immediate circumstance in the way that we want him to. Right? It's the same evidence of the same Jesus, whether that circumstance is the walls falling down or being sawed in half. That's the faith that is the evidence of the things we can't see, right? That true faith is the deep knowing that the one true narrative of redemption is the only narrative, period. That's true faith, right? And this faith is so strong that it overpowers evidence to the contrary because there is plenty of observable evidence in our lives to the contrary, right? There are plenty of circumstances that don't go the way we want. There are plenty of times where the healing and the miracles and the redemption don't come in the way that we want it. But true faith overpowers that evidence with something deeper, right? When I think of a faith like this, I always think of puddle glum. I think I've talked about puddle glum here before. And if you know who puddle glum is, you are my people. If you don't, I shall enlighten you. Puddle Glum is a marsh wiggle. I'm sure that's very helpful. Uh, he is a character from one of my favorite C.S. Lewis books, The Silver Chair. And he lives in the land of Narnia, right? And he goes on an adventure in this story with two human kids who have been transported into the world of Narnia. And they end up in this underground lair of an evil queen who is trying to convince them that Narnia never existed. And that Aslan, who is the god character, never existed, and that they made it all up in their heads. And so she drugs them, and she lies to them, and they're so carried away by the evidence that they see and feel and perceive that it sounds like truth, and it sounds like they just made all that up, right? But then, here's what Puddle Glum says. It's like one of the best moments in all of literature, people. Here's what he says. I think we're going to put it up. Suppose we have only dreamed or made up all those things, trees and grass and sun and moon and stars and Aslan himself. Suppose we have. Then all I can say is that in that case, the made up things seem a good deal more important than the real ones. Suppose this black pit of a kingdom of yours is the only world. Well, it strikes me as a pretty poor one. And that's a funny thing when you come to think of it. We're just babies making up a game, if you're right. But four babies playing a game can make a play world which licks your real world hollow. That's why I'm going to stand by the play world. I'm on Aslan's side, even if there isn't any Aslan to lead it. I'm going to live like a Narnian as I can, even if there isn't any Narnia. That's the deep knowing. That's the deep faith that even when all perception even when all evidence is telling this person that his whole life is made up and that his faith is not valid, he says, you know what? My truth is way more beautiful than this truth, so I'm going to live like a Narnian, even if there isn't any Narnia, right? Even if I'm drugged and disconcerted and lied to, something in me is still drawn to the truth. That's the faith that is birthed in us by relationship with Jesus. That's the faith, right? 
What could birth it? No circumstance could ever birth a faith like that. Only Jesus can. And that's why I think the Father's request in this story is the most beautiful declaration of faith. Because he is inviting Jesus into a relationship to say, I do believe, but you have to help my unbelief. You're going to have to grow something deeper in me if I'm going to have something deeper, right? And that's why that song, Weep With Me, is so exceptionally powerful, because it's that invitation to relationship and intimacy, right? It's saying to Jesus, I'll trust you whether or not you show up in my circumstance because I know that you'll show up for my heart. Right here in the shadows, right here I will offer my praise. What's true in the light is still true in the dark. So what if that is the true reality of our faith? Many of you guys know my dad is fighting stage 4 cancer right now. And I believe and pray for total healing. We all do. And we've prayed around him at this church, right? And I prayed to God when we first got this diagnosis. This prayer of this man, I don't think I knew I was praying that prayer that day, but I prayed like, If I can have faith strong enough to heal my dad, then you're going to have to give it to me. Like, you're going to have to give me that faith, God, right? And then, as I was praying those prayers, I knew knew he already had. Because I realized that I and we trust him regardless. That the circumstance isn't going to shake or define our faith, right? Nothing can shake it because I trust Jesus and I trust his love for my dad. And that sort of faith is evidence. Evidence of God working in the world. Evidence of redemption. So the band can come up. We're going to sing a beautiful song to close. Evidence. A proof which thoroughly convinces the understanding and determines the will. I see this evidence alive in you, in each of you. I do. And I see the way that you vulnerably and authentically take your hearts and your lives before Jesus. And you you speak the truth. You run from pretense. You embrace authenticity. And you invite Jesus into relationship. And as you do, church, your faith is born and grows into evidence that, can't, that nothing can take away. That nothing can take away. That's the place where you can speak boldly and freely before God. Lord, I believe. Help my unbelief. And that is enough. And he will. So let's pray. God, I thank you for this chance to look at this word, to look at this idea of faith as a gift, of faith as a seed that is planted only by you and relationship with you. And I pray that as we think about it, that we will ask you, that we will ask you for more faith, that because you long to give this gift to us, you long to give it to us. So God, I pray that we will long to ask for it. And I pray that the evidence will be so strong that nothing can shake it. I pray that we will worship you and trust you regardless of any circumstance. And I pray that our children and our community will witness that evidence 
of your love in the world. In your name we pray.